calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hello and welcome to Vulgar History, a feminist women's history comedy podcast. My name is Anne Foster and today I'm sharing with you an interview I held with author Rachel Cantor. So her most recent book is a novel, Asterix, called Half-Life of a Stolen Sister, a novel by Rachel Cantor. And I say Asterix because it's, it's a novel and it's also kind of a biography of the Bronte siblings. So Charlotte, Emily, and Anne Bronte are known as being novelists. There were other siblings in that family as well. So it's a novel that retells their story in an innovative and interesting way that I'll let Rachel explain what it is. The book is described by the publisher as it reimagines the lives of the Bronte siblings, Charlotte, Emily, Anne, and brother Branwell, from their precocious childhoods to the writing of their great novels to their early deaths. A form-shattering novel by an author praised as laugh-out-loud hilarious and thought-provokingly philosophical by the Boston Globe. So it's, we're going to talk about the Bronte siblings as well, because we've never done an episode about them. So Rachel explains who they are, and then we get to talking about her innovative and interesting and unusual book. So I'm joined today by Rachel Cantor, who has just published her latest book, Half-Life of a Stolen Sister, which is a... Uh, reimagining of this, the lives of not just the Bronte sisters, but all of the Bronte siblings. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So before we talk about your book, I was just hoping you could explain a bit about who the Brontes were. The three of them are known as published authors, but there were other siblings as well. Can you explain who was this family? Who are these people? So the Bronte family lived in early 19th century Yorkshire in England. They were initially, anyway, the, there were six children. There were six children of uh, Patty or Patrick and Maria Bronte. Patrick was a, a vicar. So there were six children. In descending order of age, there was Maria, Elizabeth, Charlotte Bronte, the famous author Charlotte Bronte, Branwell Bronte, who was the only boy of the six siblings, Emily Bronte, the famous author of Wuthering Heights, and Anne Bronte, who wrote two novels herself. She was the youngest one. She was the baby. 
the mother, Maria Bronte, died when Charlotte Bronte was about five years old, uh, leaving the six children without a mother. Um, and very soon, maybe a few years later, three or four years later, the two older sisters died, Maria and Elizabeth. The children lived in a, <laughs> they lived a sort of a, a very imaginative life together. They told stories together. They wrote stories. They played. They learned together and created these entire universes together, this whole imaginative world, which is very, it's, it's sort of celebrated. They wrote little books for themselves, the size of postage stamps, trying to recreate the, uh, the typescript writing. So the writing is extremely tiny and hard to read. As they became young adults, they all tried to go out in the world and earn a living with mostly disastrous consequences because none of them really, none of them really flourished away from home. At a certain point, they, the three sisters decided to write, uh, to publish a, a volume of poems together. They had always written poems. Uh, Emily was acknowledged to be the, the best poet of them, but the three of them published this po book of poetry to universal neglect. Nobody cared or liked their poems. At the same time, Branwell, who also fancied himself something of an artist, something of a, of a poet, something of a writer, but didn't have the kind of the application, didn't have the, the, the steadfast kind of ability to apply himself, started to become addicted to various substances and started kind of living a very chaotic, self-destructive life. The, the three sisters decided that as part, partly a, as like an artistic decision, but also partly a, um, a decision of survival that they needed to write novels because their home where they lived was entailed to their father's job. He was a vicar and they lived in a parsonage. But when he died, they would be, you know, out on the streets and, and had shown very little ability to, to, to earn a living otherwise. So they, they wrote their very famous novels. Very soon thereafter, because their lives were very short, three of the four remaining siblings died in a terrible, terrible nine-month period. So first Branwell, at around the age of 29, 30, 31, they were all around that age then Emily, and then Anne, and uh, leaving Charlotte at the age of 33, having survived five siblings, her mother, and by that time also her mother's sister, who was the aunt who had come, who had come to live with them to take care of them. And uh, you know, at, at age 33 or thereabouts, she was unmarried, as they all were, considered unattractive by the standards of her day, and uh, a spinster, obviously. And uh, she had at that point, to look forward to a life very much on her own with her father, you know, with whom she had shared a certain closeness, but not the sort of closeness she had with her siblings. And she had to kind of face this future of terrible grief, loneliness, and there was every reason to believe that she would spend the rest of her life alone. She managed to continue writing and being creative through this period of grief. And she even managed at the very end of her life, which was still in her 30s, to marry. So that the life of this family kind of begins with a death and ends with a death, at least in my in my writing of them, but encompasses so much. It encompasses creativity, it encompasses beautiful sibling relationships, which which hold with them all the kind of the 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 messiness of family relationships. They have there's jealousy, there's anger, there's disappointment, there's deep love and care. It covers the whole span of their lives. And and um their lives were very, very interesting, although most of them were spent very much within their home. Yeah, and their books, you know, their books live to tell the tale of their of their marvelous genius. 
Do you think it was, because I find it so fascinating, the three siblings from the same family all, well, you said they kind of needed to write novels, they needed to make money, but the fact that all three of the the women, like their books are, are very well regarded, they're all very well written. Do you think it was the influence, they're sort of helping each other get better in their writing, you know, like a little writer's group almost? Yes. That's very insightful of you to say. I, th- I think I was very enchanted by that idea that they had within their home the perfect critics and support for their writing. You know, who among us can say that? I mean, who among us writers can say that? They were completely, I think, at least in my understanding of them, my my interpretation of them, transparent to each other. They had the ability to share everything about their natures and their thoughts and their imaginings and desires and hopes and dreams with each other, especially the sisters. And so, yes, they would, you know, famously kind of every night talk about the development of their stories and they would walk around, I think it was walking around the table and they, you know, it was like, it was like a, like a little, little, little walking course they would do. And as they walked, I think that kind of maybe freed their imagination a little bit to talk through what they've been writing. And, and that, that literary fellowship is extraordinary. You know, some of us have writing groups or we have readers, but you know, they're not people who are necessarily engaged on a daily basis with us when we write. And I don't mean also to suggest that because they had to write novels in order to possibly survive, that they wouldn't have written them otherwise. It's possible. You know, I think both Emily, I'm sorry, both Anne and Charlotte had definite ambitions to write novels. And obviously all three of them had uh, had the talent and the genius to write them. Emily very much did not want to write a novel. She did not want to have her name out in the world. She did not want to share the the beautiful kind of flowering of her inner world with anybody outside the family. She was extremely private and just had very little interest in, in fame or the social world out there. So it's extremely likely, at least as I understand it, that she would not have written the novel had she not been pushed by Charlotte primarily and also their, you know, their very, their straightened circumstances to do something, you know, to do something. Oh, there's the kitty. So they published their books under pseudonyms, right? They used male pseudonyms. Can you talk about that? But they use because they use the same surname. So it was like, we're all men, but we're also siblings. Like they didn't. So they made that connection clear, right? Yes, yes. I think at least, you know, I, I have to I have to couch everything with, with saying that the research that I did for this book, because it took me more than 10 years to write, is itself 10 years old. So it, sometimes it can be confusing for me to remember where does the true story end and my own interpretation or my creative work begin. But certainly they wanted pseudonyms. They wanted to protect themselves. They wanted to protect their privacy, which is a really important aspect of this. It wasn't just that they wanted to see their books in the world and therefore had to adopt male names, or at least gender kind of inconclusive names, but they also very much wanted privacy. And Emily was kind of the the, the, the uh, spur to that. She she insisted on having that, that barrier between herself and the world out there, that no one would know who they were. But there was also a very practical requirement that if they wanted to publish their books, which were not kind of polite drawing room comedies, they were, they were, something of a different order, if they wanted to publish those books, they would have to uh, hide their their femaleness uh, to a certain extent. Yeah. I find it interesting that they were doing that, but yet they didn't hide their connection to one another. Yes. Well, I think they were very canny in that regard. I think they recognized that there was possibly some positive publicity to have been, you know, to, to result from the idea of three related people publishing at the same time. It would be the same thing these days if each 
book was each author was you know equivalently regarded or celebrated it would be it would be a sensation wouldn't it and i think that's what they were hoping for they certainly were hoping for that possibly when they published their book of poems together <laughs> i think they sold four copies it didn't it <laughs> didn't get them any renown whatsoever but um you know it, it was they were you know country people they they were sophisticated though in certain ways and i think they, they correctly understood that this would create a kind of if it reached the public it would create a certain amount of interest and they were they were correct yeah so can you talk about what that was like when their book so first of all i believe branwell was because he was the only boy he was the one who's like hey I, I have these books maybe you should publish them they're totally written by men like he was the liaison to publishing right Oh, no. Oh, no, not at all. No, 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 not at all. No, 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 no. Charlotte was okay. the driving force. She had a very, she was a driving force behind this. It was her idea. She's the one who approached the publishers. She kind of famously, and once they got, once they were rejected, she would cross out the name of the publisher and re- write a new one on the envelope, which is, you know, it's obviously did not show a lot of sophistication that, that, that gesture, but she was, she was the driving force. And when a publisher expressed interest in Emily and um, Anne's books, because the, the book that went out with this first this first um, effort was a, a book of Charlotte's, which was not a very good book. It was called The Professor, and that was only published much later once she became famous. It was not really worth publishing at that stage. But a publisher did express interest in in, in Emily and Anne's books. Charlotte was not happy with the 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 offer, you know, the publication offer. But Emily and Anne were like, okay, we'll take it, you know. Uh, and that publisher did not treat those books with the respect that they deserved. And and Emily, I'm sorry, that then Charlotte kept persisting. She wrote then Jane Eyre and found her own publisher for that. But still, they were published at the same time, even though they had separate publishers. And the publisher who published um, Jane Eyre was much more respectful, much more aware of the brilliance of his author and, and, and her potential also to write additional books and treated her manuscript with much more care. But yes, no, it was, it was her that, you know, Branwell intercepted um, some proofs that they were to read. And it was their, his first concrete, you know, revelation that his sisters had published a book. I'm sorry, this is the poems. And he took the, the, this manuscript, which he had been excluded from and, and kind of strew it all over the house. He was very, he was very upset because you know he assumed that a book, uh, you know, publication. Uh, that, that, I'm sorry, he assumed that that correspondence coming from a publisher would have to be addressed to him, even if it was addressed plainly to his sister. Anyway, so uh, yeah, he was he was aware of their publication and very distressed by it because he had not been included. Right, as the only boy, that was his right. He believed to be included in this sort of endeavor. Yeah, I promise we are going to talk about. We are going to talk about your book, but first I'm just curious to know what was your, do you remember when you first encountered the works of the Bronte sisters? And if so, which book was it that you read first? Yeah. So I definitely remember I was 10 years old and it was Jane Eyre and uh, I loved it beyond all things. And it's still, it remains my favorite book. And the Brontes are important to so many people because I think they encountered them in childhood, right? And so many of them encountered Jane Eyre in childhood. And you know, with Jane Eyre, you start with a character that you can identify with, perhaps especially if you're a bookish girl, right? Because she's in the very first scene, she is sort of hiding, if I'm remembering correctly, sort of hiding on a window seat, reading a book, right? When, when, when she's, but she's, you know, there's so much in that book, which is so exciting 
for a young person, but also for an older person. It's there's adventure, there's injustice, there's her the wonderful character of Jane, right? There's the the voices on the wind, there's the house fires, there's the the woman in the attic, there's romance, there's misunderstanding. And this incredible character of Jane, who even though she is not conventionally attractive, very much like her author, even though she's small and insignificant, very much like her author, she insists on her dignity. She insists that she is worthy of respect. She is worthy of being treated with the same consideration as a beautiful lady of, of you know, upper class lady. She expects to be treated in, in a certain way and demands it. And, and that's a, you know, it's a very, it's a very moving book in, in, in that way. And, and, and her character is very, uh, it's very engrossing, I think. And, it, and, and I, yeah, so I love that book. And I don't think I read Wuthering Heights until I was an adult. It's not really a children's book. If you think about it, it's a very dark and brutal book, very much unlike the, 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 uh, Hollywood depictions of Wuthering Heights. It's a very brutal and, and, uh, disturbing book. Um, and I don't think I read Anne's, Anne's two books until much later. Yeah. So it was, it was Jane Eyre that, that brought me to the Brontes as it did many people, I think. And so this leads me into asking you about your book. So what was the first spark of an idea that you wanted to retell their stories in a different way? And now we're just going to take a break for a word from our sponsors. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. So the thing is, I have allergies. My nose gets stuffy. I get sort of sinus congestion, and it just really can sometimes get in the way of doing things I really want to be doing, like recording this podcast, for instance. But you might have noticed that when you're listening to this podcast, you never hear me sounding like a duck or uh, with a runny nose. I'm never wiping my nose or stuff on the microphone. And that's because luckily for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin-D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. So I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies, and the thing is, when I'm using it, you won't even know that I have allergies. My voice sounds so crystal clear when I'm recording and when you're listening to me right now, but also when I'm not doing podcasts, when I'm doing other life-related things, like just going about my day-to-day life, like sitting on the bus or going to work or whatever, going to the movie theaters. I don't have to worry about like, do I have tissues with me? Do I have a handkerchief? Is this noise bothering everybody? Am I being gross? Ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. 
Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. And we're back. Well, I was I was overseas. This was about almost 20 years ago, probably. And I had was working on my first book then, and I had run out of books, which one did back in the day before the uh, before the ebooks. And I went out looking for a new book to read, and I found myself. I was in Copenhagen, and I found myself in a Danish bookstore, and I saw Villette there, which is one of the later books of Charlotte Bronte. And I remembered Villette as being a book that a friend of mine in college, who was a very smart English major, it had been her favorite book. And somehow, all these years later, I remembered that fact, and and I picked it up with a lot of enthusiasm. But before reading it, I read the preface to the book, which was written by, I believe it was written by one of the biographers of the Brontes. And that was when I had my first introduction to their to their lives and to the life in, in, in particular of Charlotte and learned about the death of five siblings, learned about the death of the mother when, when I'm sorry, when, when Charlotte was so young and read about her writing Villette alone after having experienced this communion of this kind of creative communion, but also just having create having experienced this loving, very close family and now being very much alone. Just, it moved me a lot. I wanted to understand how she could move from what must have been unfathomable grief, especially given the fact that, that you know, that Branwell, Emily, and Anne died within a nine-month period, just pow, 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 all of them gone. And, and she is left, you know, a, like I said, just a spinster with very few chances of ever, ever finding somebody that, would, that she could marry or, or that spend, spend her life with. And I want to understand how she could continue being, how she could continue surviving, first of all, how she could continue being creative. And that was, that was the idea behind, that was the, 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 the impetus behind the book, was really to understand that that ununderstandable um, phase in her life and how she she managed to survive. And then I read Villette, and Villette was just an, extra, was an extraordinary, extraordinary book. And that also inspired me too, yeah. So describe your book. How do you explain it to people? <laughs> it's not your expected book, is it? So I take this family with all their history and all their family members I take them to a new time and place, which is to say 21st century North American city, mid-sized North American city. It's an unnamed city, so it's not your city or my city. It is just a mid-sized North American city. And I use a variety of forms to tell their story. So it's a novel, a story, in, a novel in stories. And I use a variety of, of forms to tell their story. So many of the stories are told in the form of diary entries or letters or kind of conventional tales, which are, you know, forms you might expect in a, in a, in a novel and stories, but also use a, a match.com profile or home movie or a memo or um, a graphic novel page with, and I use a variety of points of view. So some of these tales or letters are told from the point of view of one of the Bronte family members mostly the siblings, but also Papa has his turn, aunt has her turn. But sometimes the, the, the points of view are from people who are external to the family. So a biographer or the publisher, Charlotte's publisher, who is an important person in her life, 
or a friend of Branwell, depending on the moment in history that I wanted to write about, who could tell that story best, who could, who could describe that moment in, in, in the, the best possible way, I would choose a, a point of view. So it's kind of a multi-form, multi-vocal story that nonetheless tells a continuous tale from the death of the mother all the way to the aftermath, really, of the death of Charlotte um, and how she's remembered by her father and by her husband. So it's a, it's a long span of time, at least, you know, considering their, the family life. And it's a more or less continuous story. So while it's told from a variety of points of view, you do follow the same characters from the beginning to the end of this story. At what point did you, was it early on or later on that you decided to make it be this 21st century retelling rather than a, in the actual era in which they actually lived? It's a funny story. I, I, I guess I'm a very instinctive, very intuitive writer, most, uh, more in this book than any other book. But I think, you know, when I write best, I'm using this kind of, I'm accessing a sort of an unconscious or subconscious voice in my head. So I had, I had intended, strangely, to write a realistic novel about them. My, my idea, which was not very well formed, but it was, it was a working idea, was that I would have maybe four novellas one for each of the surviving four Bronte children. And each would tell the story of a kind of a critical point in their collective lives. And, you know, the four novels, novellas themselves in one volume would collectively kind of tell you something about their their life. But it would be set in 19th century Yorkshire, would have that setting. And I was in, um, I had the great, incredible good fortune to be at a at residencies for, which is a, a place where writers and other artists can go to be supported in their work and they feed you and you're, you're, you have other creative people around you and you have no obligation except to write or do make your art all day. And then at night you might, again, sort of like the Brontes, you would have community at the end of the day with which to talk about your work if you wanted to, or talk about current events or whatever you wanted, tell jokes, doesn't matter. You'd have that creative community and support. So I was had the incredible good fortune for a period of three months to go to two successive residencies. And I think Having that space and that 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 space and time created a spaciousness also in my in my imagination, so that while I thought I was going to write a realistic book, when I sat down to write the first piece, having read something of the historical record, the the novel, the novel certainly, but also the some biography and and the first pieces of the biography and letters, what came out was a story of the four remaining siblings running around in a park. Suddenly they weren't on the moors. They were in a city again with a subway, (laughs) with a rent-controlled building. They went into a museum and started sketching dioramas. They were in a setting that I could understand. Now, this wasn't something I had planned. It was just something that I was able to access in sort of the fullness of this creative space that I was in. And I was surprised. It wasn't something I had ever planned. And I just continued. And I considered Papa Bronte. I considered his historical, the historical record was that after his wife dies and he has six small children to uh, raise, that he tried kind of desperately to find a new wife, right? He want, and it, barely any time had passed at all. That may have been, that may have been an acceptable action in his time and place, but what did it mean in our time and place? And I thought about it and, and I tried to think how someone like him in our current day might try to attract 
a partner and I wrote for him a match.com profile. I gave him a dating profile. And so the voice in that case was his, obviously, and the form was this, this profile. And through that, I was able to communicate, I hope, something both of the kind of the comic nature of his hopeless endeavor, which was to find a, some woman who would take on the raising of six children on his vicar's salary, um, something of the comedy of that, but also something of the terrible pathos of that, because not only was his, his attempt kind of hard to see succeeding just on the face of it, but you could see something in the voice of that piece of his arrogance, of his self-absorption. You could see from his tone that he was never going to be successful. At the same time, you could see something of his love for his children. So that form enabled me very succinctly without going into a lot of detail and trusting the reader to pick up on this, to understand all this, to convey something of that of that moment. And you don't need me then to tell you that he was unsuccessful. You know this from reading these three pages. This form communicated that. And then I went on and I read some more pages from the biographies, from the letters, and decided what was the next moment and the next form, whatever it was, the next point of view suggested itself. It was, as I said before, very. Ex- it was an extremely intuitive process that I could never have planned and could never have announced to myself ahead of time. But once it once it emerged, I was extremely happy with it. I enjoyed having that creative freedom, and I felt it was a respectful or even even an appropriate course to take to 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 investigate the incredible creativity of this family. And can you explain the title, Half-Life of a Stolen Sister? Oh, yes. That story, that that title arose out of that very first story I wrote, which told me so much about the family. It was the title story, Half-Life of a Stolen Sister, but it's also a line in the story. So in the story, among the many things you learn about the family, we learn about how the children were kind of homeschooled, but even more than that, self-educated. And they're learning about Marie Curie, which of course is not something they would have learned about in the 19th century, but it's something they learned about in my book. And they're also at the same time trying to reckon with the deaths of their two older sisters, which had happened very recently, maybe a year or two before. So this is on their mind. So they're sort of considering them in their play stolen sisters, right? The sisters who are stolen from them. And in their childhood imaginations and their children's imaginations, they're trying to understand that. How could they have lost these two sisters? What could be done to save them, to rescue them, right? So half-life is something that we understand. We understand if, I'm not a physicist, but we know that it refers to the decay of an unstable substance, a radioactive substance. And we might understand that to be a figure for grief, right? How long does it take for grief to dissipate? Does it dissipate altogether? Or is it something that just dissipates slowly with time? How And, and the stolen sister, again, can be understood to refer to these, these two sisters who were quote unquote stolen. Might also be understood to refer later to two additional sisters who are stolen from Charlotte, which would be Emily and Anne. So how long, how do we understand grief? How How long can it Last, how is it transformed? That's the, these are the ideas that are kind of, I hope, communicated by the title, which yet also kind of is, is a little mysterious, right? It's a little bit mysterious, but it does come out of that, that very first story. And it's in the voice of, of the children. And so your book is, it's already published. 
how has that been? How is the you've readers finding it and reading it? Do you know what's the response been like? Well, I've been in sort of a whirlwind place. Uh, I've done, I think, boy, I've lost track, six or eight readings already. One has been virtual, but others have been in a couple, three of them in New York. I was in Boston. I was in Washington. I was in, in uh, Philadelphia, all places where I've lived in the past and have a number of, of beloveds, you know, people I, I know and care about. So for me, the response, the initial response has largely been from people I know, which has been my experience in the past. Those are the folks who are most vocal. You go to a reading and it's it's an incredible, beautiful experience. Uh, your, your readers may or may not have ever attended a, a, a literary reading, but you know, I'll sit in a bookstore and I'll talk with somebody about the book. But in the audience will be people from all stages of my life, from elementary school, middle school. I lived in all different kinds of places when I was growing up. So I have lots of different, lots of different schools, graduate school, my work colleagues, other writers. And the response has been amazing. It's been amazing. People respond to this book in, in a very emotional way, which is really important to me. I think reviewers might be caught up in the unusual, innovative quality of the forms and the, the transposition of the family to the modern day. But when people, when readers read this book and engage with the, the, the imaginative play of the children and feel like they're in the room with them as they're creating their worlds or suffer with the family when one of their members die or feel for Charlotte, you know, when she experiences unrequited love with her teacher, her, her teacher as a, as a young adult, then I feel like my book is, it's a success. And people, people have those feelings. People have that response. And it's, and it's just, it's enormously gratifying, you know, especially for a book that in my case, I wrote over a period of more than 10 years alone. I did publish some of these, several of these pieces in literary magazines along the way, but for people to see the whole of it and to respond to it in this incredibly moving, this incredibly emotional way, really appreciating what the book is meant to, meant to convey. It's, it's been, it's been incredibly moving. In a way that maybe earlier books, which have ironically been less personal, maybe to me, you love to hear you love to hear people's response to your book. But this book is so much more personal, uh, and so the response is it's very moving. Uh, did did that, did that answer your question? No, it did, and that's lovely because often I I interview authors before the book comes out. So with you, I have the opportunity to to actually find out what's it been like. <laughs> People are reading your book. That's fabulous, and that's that's so wonderful. That's I'm so glad that it's been finding its readers and they're they're getting out of it what you what you had hoped. Yeah, I think some people are are baffled because they come to it with no introduction. They haven't you know, haven't read anything I've written about the book, or they haven't seen me talk about it, and. And they're thinking it's going to be something it's not. They see the pictures of the Brontes on the cover and they have to adapt their expectations when they, the very first story, it's plainly takes place in the current day. And so it's not what they're expecting. And hopefully the reader can stick with me, the reader who's not been introduced to what the book is, except maybe on the back page, whatever, the back cover, that they can stick with it and, 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 uh, and find through this innovative way of telling the story of this family that they can find themselves a new way of a closer way of understanding the family, which is less maybe tied up with all the romantic stories we have of them, right? All the, 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 the myth of them, they can find a new way to relate to them themselves. I hope that's my dream anyway. Can you let everybody know 
if they want to keep up with what you're doing, a, a website and social media and things? I do. Yes, yes, yes. So I have a website in which I have the basics of the all the events I'm doing. I will still have, so this we're, we're speaking now at the end of July. I still have several events coming up in New York. I'm going to be at the uh, Toronto uh, Literary Festival at the end of September. I'm not sure about the date of that yet. Also the Boston Book Festival, which is in the middle of October. But that that events listing in my website, which is rachelcantor.com, will always be updated. And that will also contain more information about the book, reviews, which have all been positive, thank heavens, <laughs> uh, reviews and some more about the book. All the pieces that I'm publishing, you know, kind of adjacent to the book about the book will also be linked there. You can read about the book uh, and some of the things I've written about it there as well. And hopefully soon I'll have some of the, you know, the, this podcast and, and others will also be linked to there. So folks who are interested in the book can find out about it there. But I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram and I'm on Twitter or whatever it's calling itself these days. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> I am tentatively on threads. You can find yeah. me easily, I think, Rachel Cantor in any of these social medias. And I'm also, you can also link to them through my website. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today about your book. It's it's such a treat. I did. I, I got a, an early copy of it and I read it and it's so innovative and it's so interesting. And I was, I'm always excited to learn from authors how they came to the place of writing this book. And it sounds like it was sort of a, yes. a faded thing for you. I don't know. It just sort of like happened. It just came out this way. What a lovely way to think of it. I, I don't think of it that way, but I was on my mind for so long and it started so early. You know, if you think about it, starting with the Brontes when I was 10 years old, I won't say how many, how many years have passed since that moment. I, I, I love this book enormously. And, 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 and so maybe you're right, you know, yeah. maybe it was faded. Thank you for putting it that way. Well, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Anne. So again, the title of this book is Half-Life of a Stolen Sister by Rachel Cantor, and it's available everywhere where you get your books from. There's a little link in the show notes. If you buy a copy through bookshop.org, then a little bit of money goes to help support me and this podcast. And again, you can keep up with Rachel at her website, rachelcantor.com. We'll put that link in the show notes as well. And if you want to keep up with me in this podcast, so we're at Vulgar History Pod on Instagram and threads on TikTok at Vulgar History. You can send me an email if you want to at uh, vulgarhistorypod at gmail.com. And also if you go to the website, vulgarhistory.com, that's where you can find links to all the episodes, but also we're working on getting transcriptions for all of the recent episodes, kind of working backwards. And that's courtesy of Avalyn Malik from The Wordery. Thank you so much for transcribing my sometimes mumbling pronunciations of strange and unusual names, Avalyn. Anyway, um, we also have merch at vulgarhistory.com slash store, or if you prefer to shop at Redbubble, which works better shipping fees wise for people in international countries, that's at vulgarhistory.redbubble.com. And I also have a Patreon. If you want to get early and ad-free access to all of my episodes, you can get that by going to patreon.com slash Writer. Yeah. So next week, you're going to be back with some more episodes. I'm just double checking to make sure that I'm giving you accurate information. Yeah. Next the next episode, we're going to be doing another Mary Queen of Scots adjacent thing. And so I can't wait to talk to you all again. And until next time, keep your pants on and your tits out. Vulgar History is hosted, written, and researched by Anne Foster and edited by Christina Lumagi.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.